0: are you enjoying the light of all these glistening particles and want more i've set up a patreon page where you can subscribe for as little as two dollars a month and get even more unique and new content you'll find things like the bi-weekly pie series which is super new chat forum live hangout sessions even co-hosting opportunities and more there are so many rewards check it out at patreon.com glistening particles literally every subscription helps Thank you for supporting my passion and allowing these stories to be shared far and wide. Well, I'm so excited to have Lisa Wimberger with me today, and you'll be able to tell that right in the beginning when I go a little bit bonkers over, like she's actually here. And the reason that I was excited is because, as you might know, I love brain science. And also because I realized I had read her book, or listened to it, I should say, Like three years ago, and thought it was amazing, and sort of set it aside, and then the bike trail rediscovered it, and it was like, "Oh my gosh, this is the answer to so much." So I hope you find it too. Here's Lisa. Hey, listeners. I think we're going to hear me having one of my um, fan crushes today because I have Lisa Wimberger on on the call, and we're going to talk about neurosculpting. Hey, Lisa. Hi. It's Uh so good to be here. I'm. I'm like beyond delighted that you're here because when I reached out to you and asked I thought what are the chances she's so amazing and her book's so amazing and her institute's so amazing thanks for all that um I love talking to people about neurosculpting so I love these conversations awesome awesome so let's start with just giving people a little bit of an explanation of what neurosculpting is because it is did you like coin that term I did. I like I did. it. It's a good one. Yeah,
1: thanks. It, it actually came to me in a meditation. Uh, Ooh, neuros- better. <laughs> yeah. So Neurosculpting is a five-step meditation process. It's very structured. It's got five concrete steps, and um, its design is to maximize plasticity so that people who think, oh, I can't meditate. I'm a bad meditator, which is all of my students um, <laughs> actually realize no, you can meditate really well if you speak the language of your brain. Mm-hmm. So the structure of it gets people to tap into their central nervous system, their peripheral nervous system, their thoughts, and even their subconscious patterns really, fairly quickly and fairly um, user friendly. So mm-hmm. that's what we do with it, and and it serves. All levels of um, people with stress disorders, um, all the way up to some pretty nasty physical, emotional disorders, to people who are interested in taking their self development further. So, we have a really broad audience with this five step process.
0: That's amazing. You know, I was telling you um, before we started that I, I had listened to your audiobook probably like three years ago, and it all seemed really cool to me. But I started doing it and then I sort of fell off the side. You know, another thing came along and another thing. And then recently I was biking and scrolling through my list of what can I listen to on the bike ride. And I'm like, oh, I remember this. I want to, you know, I get really excited about hearing about our brains. And so I was listening and I like stopped in my tracks at one point because I'm like, this is exactly what I need right now. And Mm -hmm. I, I guess let's talk about a few examples so people can see, you know, can get as excited as I was about that moment of how you use neurosculpting.
1: Yeah. Um, well, I'll give you my own example cause it's really where it came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and not everyone has the same level of stress or trauma. So this is just an example, but, um, I, I grew up, I, I developed my seizure disorder when I was 15. Um, and I didn't for many years know I was having seizures. I, I, I was fainting and blacking out often, but very frequently that would happen in front of my friends. So I would be like, don't tell my parents. Mm-hmm. Or it would happen before they came home from work. And I would hide it. So I never really got any kind of health care for it until it started getting much worse.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I got a diagnosis uh, after 15 years of having these seizures. I got a diagnosis because I happened to have one in front of a doctor.
2: Mm.
1: And um, turns out that I flatlined on his table. Uh, I had a grand mal seizure. I, I thought I was going to pass out like I had been doing for the last 15 years, had a grand mal seizure, woke up to a needle of atropine. He was going to resuscitate me. And he said, Oh my God, you didn't tell me. Has this ever happened to you before? And I said, yes, for Mm -hmm. the last 15 years. And he said, you didn't tell me you had grand mal seizures. And it, it was like, Talk about a slow learner and being in denial. I had no clue mm-hmm. I was having grandma seizures. I mean, how could I know? I was unconscious. But so but how can needed, you hide
0: that? Like the fact that you could hide that is even pretty amazing.
1: So hiding it was accidental. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was I was lucky. Mm-hmm. When when I say lucky, I have in quotes, at that point in time, I was mortified for people to see me like that. Mm-hmm. So from from for me, um happy having them in the bathroom before my parents got home from work gave me enough time to sort of crawl out of the bathroom. I did have them in front of my friends and I begged my friends not to tell people. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of times it happened by, you know, when I was alone. Right. And I just lay there for sometimes for hours till till I was able to to oh. crawl to a bed. But I mean imagine so,
0: if that happened when you were driving or something like that. Well, Thank God it didn't.
1: This is what got really scary is that they seemed to be manageable when I was a teenager, but mm-hmm. as I as I got older, they were not manageable at all. Mm-hmm. And I would take like twenty four to hours to recover. Mm. Um, sometimes I urinated myself. Sometimes I vomited on myself. I mean, it, it was just a mess. Right. So, so that long story short is you. Your question was, what can you use neurosculpting for? Well, um, my kind of seizures after being sent to the hospital mm-hmm. and checked out were not epileptic mm-hmm. they were vasovagal which is um, a cranial nerve and it's induced by stress okay. so here I have this diagnosis that says hey mm-hmm. you have a stress-based seizure disorder mm-hmm. and I'm thinking you got to be kidding me I've been meditating since I was 12 literally I've been wow. med- had meditation practice since I was a kid what could possibly be this stress that I can't navigate mm-hmm. So that's when I went to study the brain and that's when I realized, wait a minute, my response to stress is a pattern Mm -hmm. and neuroplasticity is the gift of us being able to undo our patterns Mm -hmm. and create new ones. So I neuroscience gave me this complete faith that I could heal myself. Um, So that's what I applied neurosculpting to. I literally uh, stripped apart my meditation practice and found all the pieces it was missing Mm -hmm. according to what the brain needed to hear, you know? And so I tested and experimented on myself with this process. And it literally, after about nine months of this particular practice, which was different than the meditation practice I had before, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: after about nine months, I had a, a seizure halo come and I just assumed that I would go out. But this um, process that I had been using, uh, this meditation process that I've been mm-hmm. using to kind of rehearse a new pattern, well, that rehearsal pattern kicked in yeah. and I interrupted my first seizure, wow. um, which blew my mind quite literally. It was like, what? I can stop a seizure
2: right.
1: before it fully emerges. And then I never had one. Again, I had I had halos, mm-hmm. but I never actually seized because I had broken the pattern. So for me, um, I use neurosculpting at the most autonomic central nervous system level that you can use it at. I used it to help redirect my vasovagal response. Mm-hmm. That's brainstem. That's mm-hmm. autonomic. That's heart rate. That's lungs. Um, after that, I realized I could use it to rewrite. All of my patterns, my belief patterns, Mm -hmm. my emotional patterns, my physiological patterns, and so for me, um, I was an extreme guinea pig Uh and extreme (laughs) success story, Mm -hmm. and so that gave me, you know, right or wrong, that gave me this unshakable belief that this could work for lots of people with lots of different things, and so, so I we do have students who are seizure free not just me. I mean, we have a bunch of students and clients who are seizure free with this practice. Uh, more of our clients come in with emotional Mm -hmm. stuff that they want to move through, whether it's just emotional gunk or Mm -hmm. whether it's like trauma they've been carrying their whole life. I mean, there's, there's no limit to the degree that you can apply a new brain pattern to. Um, and then we also have students and clients who have pretty, nasty physical, uh, issues going on like, uh, addictions mm-hmm. or, um, traumatic brain injury or MS, um, depression, anxiety, and even spinal. We have a spinal cord injury program where we apply wow, this, getting
0: incredible. people
1: to remap how they move. So I haven't found an audience yet that I am unwilling to experiment with mm-hmm. and be there through the journey with them. Um, so that's some of the ways that we've applied it. It's it's pretty broad. And also I have um, a niche market with first responders. So I've been I've been teaching officers for the last eleven years um, how to use this to deal with PTSD and the emotional profiling. Mm-hmm. Uh, ripple effect that happens, and uh, all of the ugly stuff that, as a society, we don't want to see in our first responders.
0: Well, right, and I think in the in the book, if I remember, you talk about how they're really in this high alert, you know, stress mode all day, all
1: the time, and they're carrying loaded guns. I can't imagine a worse combination,
0: mm-hmm. right? And right.
1: and and it's interesting because I've gotten a I've gotten some negative criticism from, you know, people who have been either subject to police brutality or victimized by pol- police brutality. I, I understand their perception mm-hmm. is that you're in alliance with them because you're helping them, but I'm actually in alliance with the, the, uh, community that suffers right. at the hands of anybody who can't regulate their emotions and their patterns, whether that is, you know, um, you know, a a violent person carrying a gun or a cop carrying a gun. I don't care who it is. I just want them to not pull the trigger without just cause.
0: You know, one of the things you said as you were describing all this is that neuroscience gave you the faith that you could heal yourself. And what I love about that is anytime we can bring science and faith into the same conversation, I feel like we're finally getting it. They go together, you know?
1: You know, I didn't even know those two things could exist, coexist, Mm Because they didn't really coexist in my experience growing up. I mean, you know, growing up there was science, mm-hmm. and that was one camp, and there was religion and faith, and that was another,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and um, and my parents were kind of on either side of that spectrum, and 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 one was always negated. At the expense of the other. Right. And and I never expected, ever expected what was going to happen when I started studying my brain. No clue. Um, You know, I was kind of adamantly, I wouldn't say I was against science. I would say that to spite my father, (laughs) and I mean, I have a great relationship (laughs) with him, but to spite my father, I wanted to diminish the need to prove anything because I felt like I always had to prove something. Right. So I wanted to not need science and I was a meditator and I learned self hypnosis and meditation at 12. And I was learning about my chakras, Mm -hmm. you know, in, in my closet reading books Mm -hmm. when I was, you know, 13 and 14. And I was studying with monks when I was between 19 and 24. And I was fully on this metaphysical train. And it, only gave me so much. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't expect, I really just expected I was going to understand what my my vagus nerve did. That's Mm -hmm. that's all I expected Mm -hmm. was let me understand why I seize. What I got was the marriage of faith and science. I got unshakable belief in my spirit. Mm -hmm. I And then I kind of softened, and I was like, hey, Dad, guess what? (laughs) This science is pretty cool, and it's a lifesaver. Ultimately, it was a lifesaver.
0: Yeah, I think it – did you feel like resistance when you started realizing you had to go towards science to solve Um, it? You know,
1: if you had told me before my diagnosis that maybe you should study more about your central nervous system, I would have not considered it. Mm -hmm but I had nothing to lose that I had nothing to lose and everything to gain because of the way the seizures were going. Um, flat happened more and more. Mm-hmm. And technically when you go into bradycardia with vasovagal, uh, seizures, your heart stops, but technically it kicks back in after, mm-hmm. after a certain amount of time and you start breathing on your own. That actually got compromised. So I would say in the the very last seizure I ever had, I couldn't breathe on my own. And I remember negotiating with myself where I would, I just didn't know how to breathe anymore. Mm. And I remember my voice saying, don't you dare go back into that horribly painful body. Don't do it. Mm. And I, I was like, Oh yeah, it's so peaceful right here. Mm -hmm. Oh my god I have a little child. I better go back.
2: Mm. So
1: so it literally saved my life because the very last seizure I had I didn't recalibrate. My heart started again, but my breathing did not. Wow. And so I had to, you know, they they were pushing on my chest multiple times. I had to be reminded to breathe. And at that point that's when I was ready to fully embrace all of it. I had been learning about the science up to that point to try to understand it. Mm-hmm. But that's when I said, I'm going to put all of my faith in what science has to offer me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I gave myself over to right. science in the way that I understood it. And and it created a miracle. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, oh, there's no difference between spirit and science and faith and data it's it's just different sides of the same coin and 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 i integrated
0: they create a beautiful symphony together absolutely absolutely So, how long did it take you to like go from that seizure to i have a i think i know how to solve this well here's how long it took me um mm,
1: seizure in the doctor's office got my diagnosis and played victim for about a year or two Mm mm-hmm like, oh, I have a seizure disorder. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, then the last two seizures I had one was in a food court in front of my daughter and she saw the paramedics resuscitate me. Mm -hmm. That's the moment I said, I'm creating a process. I'm Mm going to go in and do it. It took nine months. Okay. About nine months for me to, um, be working on trying to figure out how can I entrain my brain differently, practicing in the body of the meditation, a rehearsal script for how can I, you know, navigate a seizure halo differently. Um, I was working on that while I then had my last worst seizure, which made me amp up. So I would say nine months of playing with the process, landing on it and doing it Mm -hmm. often before I was able to interrupt my first seizure. Now, that is not a template, though, for anybody Mm -hmm. because everybody functions differently. Mm -hmm. I I did have a couple of years ago an eight-year-old girl with epilepsy and three to five seizures a day, and her mother brought her to me after reading my story, and we did one session Mm -hmm where I gave her the exact same meditation story that I had used for me, Mm -hmm. like recognizing the halo and practicing a different response. And uh, so that was one session. And three months later, her mother wrote and said she's had two seizures in three months instead of three to five a day. And then even a year later, the mother then said to me, She was getting very agitated, wanting her daughter to eat well. Her daughter was eating a bunch of junk food, and she's like, Honey, you know what happens Mm -hmm. when you eat like that? And the little girl said to her, No, mom, that doesn't happen anymore. I -hmm. don't do that anymore. So, um, she's to the my most recent knowledge has minimized her seizures to almost close to nothing compared to what they were. And I do have a traumatic brain injury client who's off seizure meds and seizure free as well. That's incredible. But everyone's different. Yeah, it's on their own.
0: I guess I meant that you know, for you, you were creating the process, so that's more what I was curious about—not how long it took you to heal. You, I'm sure they're all different. Everyone's different, and everyone's situations are different. But you were actually creating, you know, this method, which is yeah, yeah, and learning. It took me a
1: couple months. It took me a couple months of playing with. Okay, science says this. So, what if I tease my brain into this activity or that activity? No, 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 that's not the right order. Because when I go back to studying neuroplasticity, it, there are some some rules mm-hmm. of brain engagement that work better if you follow them. Mm-hmm. So it, I, I would say it took me a couple months to land on the sequencing of the five steps mm-hmm. and the nuances of how to f- engage my brain with each of the steps.
0: You know, when I was listening to the book again, and I've done several of the meditations, and I'm going to continue doing them and make that part of my daily habit. Um, I wanted to work on lots of different things. Do you recommend working on one thing and feeling like you've got that solved and then adding the next one? Well, that
1: would be nice and neat and organized, wouldn't it? (laughs) Um, However, since everything has layers and layers and layers, Uh I don't know that we actually solved the full picture. Oh, darn. (laughs) So, right? I mean, we might. Uh Um, I always tell my students, well... Work on something long enough for you to see and believe and feel some results. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a cure. Mm-hmm. You know, that may never happen. But some results so that you gain faith in your practice.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because if you gain faith in your practice first, then applying that to the more difficult, more stubborn patterns mm-hmm. will be easier versus choose these 10 things and, And now you don't necessarily see progress enough in any. And so then you abandon the practice that actually could have worked for you. Mm -hmm. So I leave it up to the student Mm -hmm. to make those decisions. But I remember um, in my metaphysical studies many years ago, I walked in and the teacher looked at me and she said, wow, wow. It's like you're carrying a whole tray of garbage and you want to dump all of it at once. And I said, yeah, I'm ready.
0: Who doesn't want to do that? That's how it is.
1: (laughs) And she said, fast and furious, right? And I said, yeah, fast and furious. furious." And then she looked at me and she goes, you know, you could do it with some more ease and grace. And I was shell-shocked, shocked. Shocked. I said, what do you mean I could heal with Mm -hmm. ease and grace? Like, it has to be abrupt and fiery and destructive and painful for me to know it's working. And she blew my mind.
0: Well, the phoenix has to happen, right? You have to, like, completely disappear and rise again to be healed, right? (laughs) Well, that's that's what we've bought into.
1: Um, But but for some people, that's too much too fast. Mm -hmm. I have a lot of clients who are traumatized, and we have to walk them step by step, and only let them go as far as they're comfortable and no further, because otherwise they may contract again and Mm re-traumatize. And this is different than, you know, pushing your limit. This is not about pushing Mm -hmm. you to your edge. This is about finding safety in Mm -hmm. your body and cultivating it so much so that it's not threatening to let your patterns dissolve.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a lot of big stuff. I mean, when you think of all the different traumas people come in with, oh yeah, you know, that's tough. You know, um, one of the things I was thinking about was: does this will this work for something like food sensitivities? You know, you
1: know, um, I do have some clients with food sensitivities and chemo sensitivities, like toxic smells. Mm-hmm. Um, it it can in so here's what I know about that. Mm-hmm. I know that when your body is in a state of inflammation,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you're going to develop sensitivities.
0: Okay.
1: For instance, um, science has shown that children traumatized at a very early age will develop a heightened sense of chemo sensitivity, meaning they will start to develop high sensitivities to perfumes, to environmental toxins, to molds, to mm. e- everything in the air, mostly because their limbic system is entrained very early on to a heightened degree. And the olfactory system is a direct line into the limbic system. Like if if we can't smell toxicity, we will poison ourselves on an evolutionary scale. Mm -hmm. So smell gets Mm. intensified and we literally start to label with our chemoreceptors in our olfactory system that things are dangerous. Mm. And so now we can't even smell them. And the same is true for... Um, digestive sensitivities, Mm -hmm. um, histamine reactions, uh, all sorts of sensitivities get inflamed with stress Mm -hmm. environments, Mm -hmm. whether that stress is mental, emotional, or in the blood Mm -hmm. as stress markers. Um, so my, my response to that is there's not one syndrome, emotional state, or disease on the planet that is made better with stress.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: They're all made worse. Right. So therefore a support for all of those things is to learn how to navigate your central nervous system and bring it to equilibrium as much as you intentionally can. Hmm. That may not be a cure, but the underlying root cause of all disease is inflammation, toxicity and stress. Mm-hmm. So right. why not go to the root cause and start renegotiating that foundation so that all the other things you're doing like Western medicine and, and food cleanses and, and medication, acupuncture. Mm-hmm. acupuncture, massage, all of that right. has a solid foundation so it can be its most efficient. Mm-hmm. Um So I'm not against Western medicine. I'm not against any of that. Uh, what I'm against is ignoring stress mm-hmm. as, as a, very critical piece of all healing regimens.
0: Well, I mean, this is something that's so easily teachable and it's something everybody can do on their own once they learn it. And we we hear again and again and again that stress is what's creating all of the illness, all of the issues. Why are, Why isn't everybody in the world doing this? That's what I always wonder when I hear, you know, I find these like nuggets of gold. Like, why isn't everybody doing this? Why wasn't I doing this for the last three years? What happens? You know,
1: the, the, the paradox that, was that I, I was given the diagnosis, vasovagals, grand mal seizures induced by stress. Um, and yet, when I would tell the doctors that I was using brain entrainment and meditation to cope with it, they laughed at that as though that were just a silly thing. Ah. Yet they gave me the diagnosis right. of stress as a contributing factor.
0: So since you came back and showed that you've cured yourself, their reaction been now?
1: doctor who gave me the diagnosis was my gynecologist because <laughs> it happened in a gynecological exam, which was okay. like the worst possible place you could ever have a seizure. right? Oh gosh. Ever. That really, ever. Sh-
0: that could actually be for a comedy routine. I mean, let's just admit yes. it. <laughs> I,
1: you know, I'm, I'm working on a bunch of skits because that's definitely one of them. Um, and I lost touch with him probably... Uh, a year before I interrupted my first seizure, I switched
0: doctors. Mm, okay. I
1: never, I never went back to him. Um, so I don't know what he would say, but I do know that my, some of my clients who are under the care of neurologists, their neurologists will have often asked them, well, what is it that you're doing because mm-hmm. you're healing pretty well, they will tell them neurosculpting, and I never get the official um, endorsement. But mm-hmm. what I do get from neurologists is great. If it's working, keep doing it. Right. I haven't had one neurologist patient tell me they were told not to continue.
0: Well, I wonder um, why they don't want to talk to you, though. That's my thing. Like, If I were in the medical profession and I found out somebody was doing something that's helping my patients significantly and they can learn to do it on their own and it's it's making a huge you know a difference... Why wouldn't I want to know more about that?
1: Some do. Okay. Um, some do. In fact, we have a certified trainer on the East Coast who is recovered from traumatic brain injury. She has brought neurosculpting to her medical team mm. that cared for her. They are all on board. Oh, they are nice. learning it. They're they're doing it. But on the general large scale, um, it's really challenging to get the ear of a medical or scientific community mm-hmm. if you don't have a few things in place. One, you don't have a PhD. Mm-hmm. Cause I do not. Right. Two, you don't have peer reviewed controlled studies
2: mm-hmm. right. and a
1: body, even though I have thousands of students and I have so many of these miracle stories. It's unbelievable. I don't have those two other things. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, doctors don't want to risk. In fact, Someone told me they couldn't write a book review of neurosculpting and publish it in a um, you know, it's kind of a I wouldn't say prestigious, but it was a very mainstream uh, journal. Mm-hmm. They couldn't publish a book review because the book was not written by someone with a PhD. Wow, that's so, unfortunate. I mean, it's unfortunate. This is
0: yeah. it's real. So I was wondering if um, you could talk about your institute because you do all this training. Like, how long has that been in place? talk about yeah. like where it's located, how many people you yeah. serve, that kind of thing.
1: Um, I started teaching neurosculpting 11 years ago to people once it worked for me, mm-hmm. but I didn't have a location to do it in, so mm-hmm. I just did did it at yoga studios and uh-huh. and 5 years ago I opened the institute because I had too many students asking me for regular classes and I had nowhere to do it. So 5 years ago I opened the institute mm-hmm. as a central location for both in-person attendance mm-hmm. in Denver, Colorado, mm-hmm. but almost everything I do is offered online and mm-hmm. live streamed. So I would say l- probably seventy percent of our student population is global, mm-hmm. and only thirty percent is actually in person. Wow, that's so. Cool. Um, everything we do, as much as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Everything I teach is going to be available online. And anything I teach that's not available online, I archive and make available as, like, downloads or mm-hmm. online courses. Um, so we've served thousands at this point, thousands, in um, the States, in Latin America, in Canada, in the EU, in Australia, um, it pretty much... Everywhere. everywhere, yeah, mm-hmm. everywhere. We have students. I mean, we have students reading our books in Singapore. I mean, neurosculpting's in the library of so many countries mm-hmm. that it's hard to even keep track at this point. Um, we offer classes, introductory classes, bite-sized chunks. Like, oh, you're interested in learning this? Take a three-week series mm-hmm. online, mm-hmm. live with me. Right. You know. Um,
0: every Which month. I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be doing. I really, Wonderful. I really want to solve this, and I think it'll be yeah. amazing to do it, like jump in feet first. You know, yeah, yeah.
1: So we've got manageable chunks of mm-hmm. classes, and then we've got weekend immersions that also could be done online, and then we've got um, retreats, mm-hmm. and you know, weekly neurosculpting yoga, and weekly neurogenic tremor classes, and meditation meetups, and. We just try to offer as much as we can to, mm. to all
0: platforms. That's in amazing though. It, it's so accessible, which is what I love that you make it so accessible. So I was thinking, well, first of all, let's retrain my brain to not start every question with. So we could, can we okay. do that? That would be really <laughs> helpful. <laughs> I, I broke the right, I broke that, but not the, and some of the ums, but the so still happens. Um, Oh, I'm gonna, um. <laughs>
1: but, but see, now you won't think straight if you can't say so. So know. <laughs> you know for the rest of this interview. Okay.
0: So I wonder if we can, in a very simplistic level, explain what is going on in the brain with the gray matter and the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex and how you pass, you know, you move through those in order to create sure. these new patterns.
1: Sure. So when we're in states of stress, whether those are real or perceived, mm-hmm meaning we're running from a hungry animal, real, Mm -hmm. or we got a text in all capital letters from our ex. Okay, that's perceived. Mm -hmm. We got the text, but the stress is perceived. So regardless of the catalyst, if we're in stress, then what happens in the brain is that the midbrain tends to recruit the blood, the oxygen, and the glucose and get really dominant. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: When that happens... Uh, what we now know from neuroscience is that it's recruiting it away from the f- prefrontal cortex, which is really important in order for us to access things like patience and forgiveness and problem solving and creative solutions and logic mm-hmm. and empathy So it's it's the
0: higher thinking part of our brain, right? The newer, the less developed compared to the limbic system.
1: Correct, and it needs to. It it correlates in activity to our access to the things that make us proud to be human. Mm -hmm. So when we're stressed, blood oxygen and glucose goes away from that area and congregates in the midbrain, Mm -hmm. which means we're literally inhibiting access to all the really higher level things we need and want so that we can be pulled out of stress. Mm -hmm. So the prefrontal cortex and the midbrain do this interesting resource dance. And that resource dance is designed to save our lives. I want to give you a scenario to explain that. If you were being chased by a hungry bear, You want the blood, oxygen, and glucose to congregate in the midbrain. So without reflective thought, you literally jumped into run, fight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. If the blood, oxygen, and glucose did not go to the midbrain, then we might spend and waste too much time evaluating, gee, I wonder if that bear (laughs) really means to eat me or... Oh, the poor thing. He must've had a really hard winter and he's starving. Okay. We'd be dead. So (laughs) it's an evolutionary gift to recruit resources there, but only in real and imminent danger. Mm -hmm. So now in our day-to-day lives, we've labeled so many things as potential threats that we're marinating in that activity. That is terrible. It, it, creates inflammation. It creates high blood pressure. It creates almost all the disease states that we have the most expensive medications for to Mm -hmm, date. Right. So we don't want to stay there. And neuroscience has shown us that we can literally recruit resources back to the front of the brain with strategic thought, Mm -hmm. with strategic physical activity. um, And we just have to learn the secret keys that Mm -hmm. unlock that. And neurosculpting
0: unlocks that. It's incredible. Like I can't wait to see, you know, I have some specific things I can work on, like uh, just job stress, even though I love my job. I have a different job besides this. I love this job all the time, but I have Mm -hmm. another job too, which I love quite a lot, but it's just the volume of work and I get, I feel stressed. Like I'm not Mm going to, there's a hundred emails in the last three hours. What am I going to do? You know? And I know that I start to feel that. And then other things like you know paying bills or whatever those things are like a way to reprogram those and not feel stressful to me would be life-changing um, yeah you know I almost think I was on the on the very tip of the iceberg on neural sculpting because I have this thing I've been doing for about six months where um, I call it I call it tethering to the, one of the happiest moments so when I get you know when I feel myself getting stressed or something like that I have like mm-hmm. three go-to events in my life that are just like instant. Mm-hmm. I can just flood in the joint it brings me to the front of my brain to the yes, prefrontal cortex absolutely. And the reason I can tell it works is because when I'm not doing that I see the crease in my forehead <laughs> and the minute I tether to one of those three memories right. it's like I just have this whole wat like I I could almost literally feel the, the the moment where it goes from one to the other
1: yeah is, that's very yeah. um Rick Hansen does a lot of work with uh you know bringing in the good mm-hmm. and and kind of anchoring and anchoring into those positive memories, um, that's a really great way to get into your prefrontal cortex. And we have students who don't have any good memories.
2: Oh.
0: So,
1: so, uh, to be realistic, mm-hmm. we have to give them process
0: and procedure. Right. And I think because, there's probably a space for both, even for me, cause I can't always oh, catch myself for
1: sure. <laughs> and go tether. There's, there's, um, there are multiple ways into the prefrontal cortex mm-hmm. and we give our students all the ways. So in case they can't get in one way, they can get in another. Mm. Um, my job is to circumvent all of your excuses. That's my job. Mm. Um, okay. Because if you have excuses, you're not going to heal. Right. So my job is to create a process and a plan and resources and availability that literally hijacks all of your excuses and makes it clear to you that you have no excuses to heal. And if you choose to have them, it is your choosing. Okay. So we try to let our students know you have choice here. You can choose to stay in your patterns. And for some students, that is actually a safety mechanism. Mm -hmm. And I honor that and I respect it, but basically it's a choice not a conscious one mm-hmm. it's it's a patterned choice it could be so subconscious that you can't even find it mine was autonomic it mm-hmm. was that subconscious mm-hmm. um, now had t- someone told me years ago that my seizures were a choice I would have punched him in the face <laughs> just just to be clear I'm not telling you you're choosing the garbage expression of your patterns right what I'm saying is it's a choice to go in and roll your sleeves up and get dirty and really move through the neuroplastic opportunities of those mm-hmm. choices. So I just want to be clear, everybody <laughs> out there who's like, oh my God, I can't listen to her anymore because she just told me I'm choosing this. <laughs> no, I get it. I didn't choose to have seizures, right? but I chose to change them when at right. uh, the moment I realized I had that choice.
0: Well, what I love is how you, come, you keep moving between this soft space and I would have punched him in the face.
1: <laughs> oh, well, this is human design. I mean, <laughs> So one of the things that's interesting is that I think we have an expectation of those of us in this meditation world Mm -hmm. to fit a profile in a certain type. You're right. And that doesn't help Mm -hmm. because that's not real. Right. What's real is that we have a limbic system and at times we're going to be in it and elements of the limbic system can look like judgment and a fiery personality or a punch first, ask questions later moment Mm. or uh, a self-critic or all of those things. And we vilify all of that. Mm. And, and then we kind of try to believe that we're not supposed to have the natural, normal limbic aspects of ourselves. And then we shame ourselves for having them. Right. Now I'm not saying go out and punch people, (laughs) but what I'm saying is it's real. It's, it's absolutely real and there are appropriate times for it. And then there are inappropriate times for it. And the sooner we learn how to navigate the full spectrum of the nervous system, which at some point will need to be Mm -hmm. that kind of limbic self. And at other times not until we allow for the full spectrum of our central nervous system, we're going to be salmon swimming upstream and then we're going to compartmentalize and then we're going to try to be something we're not, and then we're going to be unintentional frauds
0: and stressed. And stressed yes. on top of unintentional fraud is no fun. No,
1: exactly. and I've been that. I've I, I've been that for so long, and
0: it doesn't really get you anywhere. No, it doesn't. You know, so I, I know we're getting. We've been talking for a while, and I'm, I'm going to try to rush these next two things a little bit because I don't want to not have them in the show. One of them is in the the book that I listened to, you talk about the gray matter and how that's where all these pathways get laid down. And the more we lay that pathway, the stronger that pathway gets. So can you talk about what uh, yes. neurosculpting does to basically change that?
1: Yeah. So anytime we think a thought and repeat it or do a motion and repeat it, we're exercising the same neural pathway That had coded for that in the Mm -hmm. first place. And the more we exercise it, the more we grow, um, dendritic branches. We thicken the dendritic tree, which is these like information, uh, sites off the, the brain cell that pick up information. So the more we use something, the more efficient and honed and, Mm -hmm. and activated that neural network becomes. And because dendrites are what makes up gray matter, we literally thicken the gray matter of the brain, which is all the squiggles, Mm -hmm. that's gray matter. So it functions similarly to the way you would imagine a muscle building. You stop using a pattern, the volume of that gray matter shrinks because dendritic branches prune themselves back and disappear if you're not using them. And the more you use it, the more it grows and thickens in volume. So what muscle are you exercising? You know, the negative fear-based cortical area around the amygdala Mm -hmm. or the gray matter in the front of the brain that is correlated to empathy and creative solutions. And it's an exercise program, just like you would use for your muscles. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of how gray matter functions for us.
0: I love that because you made it so simple. That is, you know, when you see it that way, people think brains are so complex and how will. But that, it's that simple. We just do the steps every day and we regrow, we grow the good parts and we trim back the not so good parts that we don't need Absolutely. to a- activate every moment of the day. I love and, that. And
1: this, and this is evidenced in our lives from day one. You, you don't try to stand up every day, then you don't learn how to walk. Right, right. You um, stop speaking a language for six months, you lose your eloquence. Right. I mean, this is just how it works. So simple, just have to do it. So So, simple,
0: but simple doesn't mean easy. (laughs) Right, ever, ever. Um, So the last thing I wanted to touch on, because I really wanted to share what made me stop on my bike ride and think I have to do this with everybody just to bring it back around to the beginning. Um, You had talked about when you were younger, you had gone, or was it you that you were talking about in the camping story or was that somebody else? It was a a fictitious me. Okay. All right. So the fictitious you. So the example was, do you want to just quick describe the example and then I'll correlate it back because you can probably do it better than me.
1: The example was, you know, as a child, let's say you go on your first camping trip and everything's new and exciting and grabbing your attention. And that night, you know, a spider crawls across your face and you freak out. Well, now you've just taken all this new stuff and encoded it to, oh my God, this is so horribly frightening. So now what do you think you're going to do the next time you go camping and you get in your tent? You right. might not even get in your tent. Right. You might be so horrified at the past. Right. It doesn't exist in this present moment, but it's there and it's entrained. So that was the gist of the story is the past keeps showing up and then defining our behaviors based on it.
0: And then if you, you, I think you said like each time that gets repeated, the fear it and blaze that it, it gets stronger and stronger and it keeps re- pushing that button. Absolutely. Okay. Pushing the button except
1: now it's adding in all of the present time things in your environment in addition to pushing that button. So let's say 5 years down the road you're you go camping and you're reliving that but now you have a very particular you're in a new kind of camping place, a very particular smell is in the air that never existed before in this experience. Now, the next time you smell that smell, which had nothing to do with the story when it first started, mm-hmm. that may trigger the story. So, we keep adding in every time we hit play again, we hit play in present time context, adding in present time factors mm-hmm. to the reminders of this experience.
0: Kind of like an, a snowball effect, absolutely like a snowball effect. Okay, so the example that caught me is I've been trying to understand why I keep feeling this button pushed when someone who is male disappears from my life. And I looked, I, I know some specific events when I was a child. Um, there was a neighbor guy who was like a grandfather figure to me, who I was like the light of his life, according to the stories. And he just died of a heart attack at like when I was three, you know, just he was there all the time and he was gone. And as from what I've done through research as a kid, we make, we make up the story that it's our fault mm-hmm. because that's our brains can't understand it. And then a few years later, my grandpa, uh, I, had, he had gone shopping with me, taking me a little Janie at like six shopping and we came home and he had a heart attack and died. And mm-hmm. so like I have this, people just disappear on me. And I, and so in, as I go through life, then if whether it's a friendship or a, um, a romantic relationship, if someone just disappears it like it's that snowball effect all of a it sudden it lights up that story oh my gosh it like hurts times a thousand mm-hmm. and i'm like mm-hmm. i can consciously think i'm okay this is all okay but like the the buttons that it pushes so that's one of the things i want to work on because i want to be able to have friendships and relationships and not have this like fear or this or the, or the actual, if they disappear, the pain. I don't want the fear or the pain. I like happy. Right. I want to stay in happy. You know, you know, the amazing thing is if our conscious mind
1: only had the power to use what it knows to change our subconscious mind, life would be a lot easier. <laughs> it sure but would. the truth is it doesn't. Right. So you already know right. where it came from and right. why it's there. The trick, the gift, the key is practice. Right. It's a practice and it's every day because reinforcement is what made it so strong in the first place. So you have to put the time in for the practice to, to get to the subconscious mm-hmm. belief and change it there. So if only mm-hmm. that conscious mind of mine could do all the things <laughs> it thinks it, it could do, you know, without the practice, well, right. I sign me up, but right. it takes every day. It takes yeah. every day.
0: Is there a certain script you would recommend? Would I need to create a custom script to do that?
1: We could absolutely create a custom. We I would definitely recommend a custom script okay. for that. Same five steps, but in right. step three, which is the script portion, mm-hmm. we would give you a very specific one around those memories
2: Okay. to
1: first soften the way they hijack your physiology first, right. and then soften the way they hijack your emotions, and then eventually maybe even change them enough where they don't feel like triggers anymore.
0: Right. That that would be really that would be amazing. We didn't get into a lot about who you are as a person, and like what you do in your world when you're not neurosculpting. So I'm going to ask you a couple quick questions just to give people a little insight of that. So, um, one is, what would you be doing if you weren't doing this?
1: Well, I'll tell you what I'd be doing in between doing this, because that's what I would be doing if I weren't doing this. Mm -hmm. In between doing this, I am a dancer and a drummer. Wow. that's pretty much what fills my time: is my family, dance, and percussion.
0: What kind of dance?
1: Um, I do all the a lot of the Latin partner dances, but I also mm-hmm. do. Um, I grew up doing jazz and tap. Um, I do uh, mostly now. It's partner dance. It's Brazilian Zouk. It's Latin bachata and salsa, and it's Afro kizomba. I just love Very the partner cool. dances. Yeah,
0: you are officially. The second um, Brazilian zouk dancer to be on Glistening Particles, and really? if it's not if that's not enough, the other person, uh, Dan Monroe, was someone I met on Oasis. Interesting. Yes. He's wow. Da- yeah, he's a coach for men. He's got this thing I think called Bro Coach, and he's in Czech Republic right now. He's from Australia. He's on one of the early episodes, somewhere in the first. Fifteen or so.
1: Brazilian Zook is a magical <laughs> healing art form. I will just leave it at that.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. You know, he uh, the reason he started doing it is because he did a year of yes, and a, a girl asked him to go dancing with him, and he's like, I have to say yes. And now he he competes. <laughs> actually, he's like yeah. really into it. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's an addiction. <laughs>
0: Okay. Um, If you, I was going to ask if you could tell me like one random fact about yourself, something that I can't even think of how to ask.
1: Um, One random fact about me is I grew up thinking that I was 75% Italian, 25% German, only to get my DNA tested and find out that's not true. I'm 80% Italian, Sicilian, Mediterranean less than 1% German, which makes no sense because my last name is Wimberger. <laughs> and the rest of the percentage is a mix of North African and Western Europe. So that's a random fact that I just learned about me. And now you're learning it about me.
0: <gasps> that's incredible. Although I would have guessed Italian looking at you. You look very Italians, Italian. That's pretty self-evident. Self yeah. <laughs> <I agree. laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Oh, oh, oh wait. The one most important yeah. thing. Where can people yeah. find you?
1: Oh, <laughs> neurosculptinginstitute.com. Come take classes live, come look at our learning store and take download classes. Uh there's no excuse for you to stay stuck in in this limitation anymore. So come visit us there, join us on retreat uh in September in New Mexico. It's going to be the most a magical retreat. Um, and yeah, tune in at the neurosculptinginstitute.com, join our newsletter and then you'll get discounts on all sorts of things.
0: Oh, I'm doing that too. Hey, what's your page. All right, we're in New Mexico by the way. Santa Fe, just outside of Santa Fe okay. in the mountains. Not is that near Taos? Uh, it's
1: not so far from Taos.
0: Okay, all right. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again so much for joining me. This was just a uh, pretty happy day for me. I really appreciate your time. Uh-
1: Well, thanks for reaching out, and it was great to talk to you. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Mm -hmm. Bye. All
0: right. So how many of you are going to go out right now and get the Neurosculpting book and figure out how to do this? I know I'm going to keep doing it because the fact that she has changed so many lives with this, you know, specific technique that she developed is impressive, and I kind of love how it came from solving her own issue, which I don't think she actually even went into... Well, I guess she did. She did go into that in detail, but the fact that she could look at a problem in her own life and solve it for herself and then share it, love that. And I'm definitely going to have to check out more of those uh, workshops, but I was wondering in your own life, have you ever had a situation like that where you've struggled with something or found a problem that you were dealing with and you discovered the way to solve it and then shared it out with others and made a difference? I'd love to hear your stories. So send them my way. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. So, are you following your passion, inspiring people, and willing to share your story? Then find me, because that's what I do. And remember, keep up with all the news by visiting glisteningparticles.com and signing up for the newsletter where you'll get the inside scoop on where I'll be wandering next, some guest updates, and the latest random acquaintance story. For up-to-the-moment shenanigans, follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you see me post from down the road at your local diner, be sure to drop everything and come say hi, because I love to meet the listeners. Until next time, keep shining.